Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley welcoming you to episode 99 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, in which I and my friend William Rembers are going to be talking about Sidney Poitier's directorial debut, Buck and the Preacher. This is a film from March of 1972, and uh, we're going to pick up a conversation that William and I started a couple, I don't know, last season. I'm not sure exactly if it was 2019 or 2020. Uh, when we talked about Brother John, which was another uh, Criterion Channel offering starring City Poitier that has since come and gone. And uh, Buck and the Preacher will be leaving at the end of May. And so uh, I'm kind of turning this episode around pretty quickly. I just published one on Federico Fellini's Roma. And here we are uh, just a couple days after that one went up online. I'm going to try to get this one out as quick as possible so that listeners can uh, hopefully be inspired and encouraged uh, to watch this film before it leaves and then perhaps give us a listen after they've had a chance to take it in. So whether you've watched it or not, I invite you to check out the conversation. Maybe we'll spur you to to give it a look or maybe you've seen it already and want to follow along. But uh, with that little preamble out of the way, William, how's it going tonight? It's going very well. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man, and uh, really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this uh, pretty pivotal film in the career of Sidney Poitier. He um, had, you know, had a lot of success in the movies as a leading man. Uh, you know, he'd won some Oscars and and gotten a lot of you know praise and and adulation. And uh, now times are changing. We're in the early '70s. Things like in the heat of the night. Uh, Look, look who's coming to dinner you know they had kind of come and gone uh Poitier was still very much in his prime but the the movie going market had changed a little bit and here we are having him in a western which was not exactly a new genre for him but it's not the kind of film that you would expect him to step behind the camera and direct uh even though that's exactly how it turned out and he went on to direct other films and kind of moved a little bit more in that direction and less emphasizing the acting as he went forward but uh William, let's just talk about this film. Uh, what are what are some of your impressions of Buck and the Preacher? I know that uh, you and I have kind of been chatting back and forth. We've both had a, a fair amount of enthusiasm and looking forward to this film. I'd like to hear a little bit more of your thoughts just as we get things rolling here. Buck and the Preacher strikes me as a very important film of its era and of any era, mm-hmm. and one that hasn't been discussed or seen enough, I think. It, it's, it feels like the missing piece of... Of a, of a much larger story, and one that we're connecting a little bit by following up on Brother John. Mm-hmm. Um, this was originally in the Poitier bundle, mm-hmm. which was around the time we, we, we uh, discussed Brother John, and that's the first time I saw it. 
and um, along with it, a couple of the other Sidney Poitier directed films, which we can get into. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Buck and the Preacher, I think, really stands um, as quite a remarkable example um, of a Western, of a film directed in a studio environment uh, by a black director in a time when that was very, very uncommon, and by uh, a sign of uh, or a symbol of Sidney Poitier, who was such an important figure in American acting and in cinema at the time, um, beginning to reinvent himself beginning yeah. to to show a different side and, and similarly you know people that are in the film like harry belafonte um like this 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 is one of the probably my favorite uh, of the films um poitier directed that i've seen uh and certainly one of my favorite if not my favorite films starring either of the two leads uh i think it's it's thrilling as well as, as important and the historical implications and scenarios that are brought up and exercised and painfully examined um, are, are, are delivered with as much conviction as the Western action is. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's quite remarkable because I, I've, it's more fun than the other Westerns I've seen from the sixties and seventies. And it moved me more and it taught me more and melt me, made me feel much more aware of an era in America's history, namely the period post the Civil War, as um, former enslaved people from the South were trying to create a new life and uh, were victims of further racist attacks and violence. And this is a, this is a story that I think needed to be a movie at some point, needed to be told on, on this wide a scale. And it comes at just the right time. It comes out, you know, on the heels of the beginning of the black exploitation movement. Mm -hmm. And that's not um, to say this necessarily falls in line with that. I think that it was not necessarily a genre that one would see many of, of black exploitation films, though this is currently part of the black Westerns bundle, right. which is, I think, slowly um, leaving the channel kind of like month by month. Uh, some titles have already left. Mm -hmm. And, and I think within that bundle, it stands, stands out as one of the most with it, most woke, most uh, understanding of the situation um, films uh, in, in that bundle. I think there's an essential introduction to that bundle by Mia Mask, yes. who has appeared on quite a number of Criterion discs, which um, I'd recommend anybody watch um, certainly before watching any of the films in this bundle or before Buck and the Preacher or after, if you prefer. But mm -hmm. definitely, if you watch this film, um, take a listen to what she has to say. She's written an entire book on Black Westerns and um, certainly will have more to say about that and I think more authoritatively than we might in some ways. So um, yeah. I think that, that that's something that I would recommend wholeheartedly. Well, there are many themes and uh, concepts, ideas that, and what you've just said that I think I want to pull out and extract and explore a little bit more in depth because I I agree, there's there's incredible pathos in this film, um, and I think it really is a film that has aged quite well uh, and speaks very very directly to our our present moment. Uh, whether you're talking about the era of 
Black Lives Matter, uh, even just a, a re-examination of American history or even uh, the history of, of Western culture, um, I will say, you know, my own thinking and my own regard for this film has been uh, affected by recent reading I've done. Um, and there's a, a series uh, by Raoul Peck that's uh, apparently run on HBO Max called Exterminate All the Brutes. And I have not yet seen that because I don't have an HBO Max subscription. Uh, Raoul Peck might be better known to some who he directed I Am Not Your Negro, the James Baldwin kind of biography uh, uh, sort of documentary. And Peck seems to be a very interesting and compelling figure who I want to get to know more about. But Exterminate All the Brutes uh, was a book written, I think, back in maybe the 80s or 90s by uh, a Swedish uh, academic. And it's talking about the history of European kind of imperialism, colonialism, and all of that, um, which was very, very illuminating to me because there's so much emphasis on the American history of racism, uh, slavery, the treatment of the Native American population, and all of that. Uh, but this this book, Exterminate All the Brutes, and this is a title that's quoted from uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, uh, where it's it's one of, it's mentioned in a letter by uh, Kurtz, you know, the the villain who, of course, goes on to become sort of the archetype for Apocalypse Now, uh, about a a rogue uh, imperialist, uh, an agent of the Empire who kind of goes you know off script. And, you know, is kind of driven into insanity by the brutality and the horror of what he's asked to do in order to further the national interests. Well, I know I'm, I'm expanding the horizon quite a bit by just invoking all of that, but that's kind of been some of my background uh, that's prepared me to watch this movie. And I did find it very, very moving. Uh, you, you're right. that, that the, And there's a sort of a, a scrolling script at the beginning of the movie talking about uh, the dedication to those uh, those former slaves whose uh, graves are as nameless and unmarked as is their story in history. Uh, these people who had been emancipated by uh, legal proclamation and had been at least given in concept their freedom and their rights to live life on their own terms, and yet the structures of society refuse to acknowledge that supposedly new reality and uh and these this wagon train of of just kind of black uh, you know farmers and and laborers and their families wanting to venture out into some fresh territory uh is pursued by uh night riders and bounty hunters who are trying to intimidate them get them to go back to the plantations cutting cotton and sugarcane and all of that uh, under threat of, of death and annihilation if they don't get with it. And so the story really is the, the, the setup here is that Sidney Poitier, the Buck character, is a wagon master who can, he, he's a, a war veteran as well. He, he fought in the Civil War, so he knows the territory. He knows how to negotiate with the Indians. He, he can help get these people through some of the hazards that they face. And, uh, you know, he's doing that out of a sort of a dedication and a love for his people and an understanding that they need to have some protection if they're going to make this journey and, and get there safely. 
And so the opposition is, is pretty, is pretty vehement, pretty intense. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, kind of a leader, uh, played by Cameron Mitchell, kind of a veteran of many Westerns who's kind of, you know, leading this gang of, of ruthless killers. And, you know, if they don't, if they don't follow directions, if they don't follow orders and resume kind of their slavery, uh, customs and expectations, then they're going to pay a very heavy price. And there's some pretty brutal, uh, depictions of, of people being gunned down and, and massacred, which of course was a feature of, of the settling of the American West. And I think, you know, watching watching these scenes unfold with some of that other knowledge and recent reading and, and even just the, you know, the situation that we're in politically and culturally nowadays, um, to me, it just, it really feels like, yeah, this is a significant, important story. Uh, that needs to be told and needs to be reckoned with by by audiences of of all colors of all different you know, histories and backgrounds, just to understand a little bit of where we are as a country and how we got to our current situation. Uh, but you're right; there's also a lot of fun. There's a lot of humor. There's some pretty great interplay. Uh, there's a kind of a buddy, uh, you know. Uh, theme going on here between Buck and the preacher. They start off as antagonists and rivals. They they work through their conflict and then they wind up on the same side. So, uh, and and it is interesting to think about Poitier and Harry Belafonte. Both of them really you know, kind of epitomizing in their own way uh, what to white America were kind of safe. Uh, even somewhat domesticated black men, you know, uh, as entertainers, you know, Sidney Poitier, very famous, uh, you know, guess who's coming to dinner uh, as the, you know, the black uh, romantic interest of a progressive, uh, you know, San Francisco liberal couple uh, finding that their daughter is dating this black man. And in that movie, Sidney Poitier is of the almost heroic, you know, superhuman proportions. He's like this Nobel laureate doctor, speaks what, seven languages. He's just like so all around brilliant that how can any reasonable parent, you know, be you know, looking side eye at at the, their daughter's new love interest, right? And then Harry Belafonte, yeah, he's the Calypso man. He's a he's a you know clean cut, handsome, almost a matinee idol type of character. Uh, both of these guys had you know prospered quite a bit through the 1960s, but at perhaps a little bit of a cost. They had had to keep some of their, um, you know, uh, emotions in check. They they could not really let let some of that inner you know, angst and struggle out too much because they would then jeopardize their own career. Because if you're too, you know, too, too angry, too forceful in, in asserting for equality and, and respect and dignity as a black man, uh, you're going to lose a certain portion of your audience. And so here we've got Poitier and Belafonte both kind of breaking out of their mold a little bit and kind of letting letting another side of themselves come to the forefront. And uh, I find that very, very fascinating and very uh, engaging. Now, maybe younger viewers don't really know the history or, or have the same kind of sort of prototype uh, in mind that I do, but I, my, you know, my parents listened to Harry Belafonte records when I was a kid, so I've, heard, I've known his music from my childhood. Sidney Poitier, the same uh, kind of, I've already explained, kind of his 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 image, his profile, uh, sort of rendered him kind of safe and somewhat innocuous. Uh, this is not 
necessarily where they wanted to be regarded. And Harry Belafonte certainly has a very activist side to himself and his career, as so does Sidney Poitier. But uh, William, what did you think about how we see sort of a different dimension of, of their characters and, and how that that kind of personality, that kind of authenticity comes through in the characters that they portray here? I think it's it's what's, it's a crucial import, and it is tough to, to think that... Um, some aspects of a film can lose their their resonance with time and with lack of familiarity in the context. Um, if you look at the films that were leading up to this, I think even with um, Brother John being uh, one of the, with the exception of the organization, which is um, a In the Heat of the Night sequel, uh, one, one of a, a trilogy, uh, Brother John's the film that sort of immediately precedes this. And there's something about that film which has a magical and mystical quality that um, that was I, I was seeing I was starting to see Poitier breaking from the guest who's coming to dinner to serve with love energy mm-hmm. like it, it was mm-hmm. it was it was shifting somewhere somewhere that was more progressive more independent and 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 probably you know films that he knew who uh, was well aware that would not necessarily be as financially successful. That wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily have the same mainstream appeal as the previous films he had done, and and you see that like from from this point forward, the films he is in um, are almost almost entirely limited uh, for the next few years to the films he's directing. Mm-hmm. That he's he's using this as a as a point there to sort of as a fulcrum to shift his career towards more personal interests, and. And as the next two films that follow this, uh, Warm December and Uptown Saturday Night, which were both also in the earlier Poitier bundle, um, they're very, very different films from Buck and the Preacher. And they're also very unlike other films as well. They're very much their own unique beasts. Um, I I would highly recommend A Warm December. Uh, and I, I would... <laughs> I won't necessarily recommend Uptown Saturday Night, uh, not the least which because it it co-stars a certain uh, disgraced sitcom actor (laughs) comedian who I won't name, but whose name sounds something (laughs) like Kill Bosby. Um, And uh, and of course, he then directed two sequels to that film with Mm -hmm. the same with the same co-star. However, Harry Belafonte does appear in that film as Don Corleone, basically, uh, on on account of um, The Godfather had just come out. So it was sort of like a very, very on point reference for some reason. But the thing about that film, though, is it's it's, it's unbridled chaos and comedy. A Warm December is um, a very uniquely set romantic drama with lots of um, warmth and immediacy to the, the present day. And Buck and the Preacher, of course, is the sort of... Um, uh, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we could sort of say it's 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 an anti-Western by virtue of the fact that Westerns hadn't been this, right? It's mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's operating um, in a different context from other Westerns at the time. Now, there's there's one point of comparison that I I would I would say that on the whole probably it favors negatively compared to Buck and the Preacher, which is a film that expired last month, which um, on the channel was titled uh, The Legend of Black Charlie. Right. And of course, the title was originally different. It was part of a different trilogy starring Fred Williamson. Um, and the, the the difference between that film and this is incredibly striking. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's as if the fact that one is directed by a white man and one mm-hmm. is directed by a black man might make a difference. That mm-hmm. there might be something about identity to 
to reckon with here. Um, and thinking about those two films, the, the, the simple uh, gist of Black Charlie is that um, there is a, a slave who is given his freedom. And then um, similarly to maybe the, the premise of Buck and the Preacher, that freedom is not recognized by people and they're wanting to uh, chase and murder him as a posse that follows. And he gathers acquaintances who have to shoot out with the local posse. There's one nice guy, Sheriff, who gets killed by the posse because he's in the way. Mm -hmm. uh, these these elements all actually are sort of similar. Um, there, there's a there's a I can if I can briefly spoil for 20 seconds, mm -hmm. uh, you can fast forward if you need to. But I think this is <laughs> crucial um, that Black Charlie ends with several of his accomplices getting murdered by the posse that they eventually defeat and walk off. And here they don't. And Buck and the Preacher, um, first time I saw it, I thought, oh, my gosh, are they both going to die? Is this going to be a, a, a sort of um, Sundance, Butch and Sundance moment? But they live and ride off with Ruby D into the sunset, presumably to fight another battle and live another day and continue their heroic quest. Um, there's there's something that the, the, the film Legend of Black Charlie almost it, it revels very much in the scenes where our characters get to violently murder these these racist posse members. And those are the action scenes that one is sort of looking forward to and enjoys. But they're. Uh, they they don't seem to have the same that that film doesn't have the same uh, political heart. I, I think about the fact that at the beginning, uh, the character Charlie is in love with uh, another woman who's uh, a slave at the same uh, plantation as him, and in maybe another film, his emotional uh, need to rescue her would make her part of the story. After that point, it's clear that she's going to be going to be going to become a victim. Of violence from the white slave owners and she's completely dismissed from the story and never seen again mm -hmm. and the whole point of that film just becomes self-preservation let's get out of here which is not to say that that is um an untrue reflection of maybe what that situation would be but i think with buck and the preacher there are incredible odds against buck and the preacher in the film mm -hmm. and i think it's so gratifying and rewarding the way in which the structure of the film as say like an action drama um, sets up stakes for them that are nearly insurmountable. There are incredible moments of, of ingenuity that have to be accomplished in order to achieve their ends, not just of escape, but of liberating other people, other people who are being oppressed and that their moral code is dictating that. And that their moral code is one that can be reflected in a modern day in 1972 uh, in the years following the beginning of the civil rights movement and again to today. So I think that's the big difference here. And and I think the, that Poitiers and Belafonte being two important figures that we, we would say um, can be identified, particularly Belafonte, I think, with with civil rights movement, mm -hmm. um, that that this is operating as a as a civil rights film. And I think Black Charlie was much more a black exploitation Western and felt much more like it was, what if we did the types of movies we're trying to make today to capitalize on the success of some of the urban environment, black exploitation films and set mm -hmm. that in a Western environment and use slavery as a black, as a backdrop. And it's not very uh, appropriate. I think it's sort of, it, it doesn't come, it doesn't come off as tasteful nor as politically progressive. So, right. You end up with the buck and the preacher being um, uh, letting you you leave the film feeling glad as well as 
uh, knowledgeable, which I can favor- favorably compare this to Rosewood, which is a John Singleton mm-hmm. film, which also expired last month, uh, which is about true events. And I think, again, it's, it's as if it's not by surprise that the better films in the subject might not be by white people. Um, that that film is an action film that tells a story of a violent genocidal massacre that was incurred upon um, uh, black people and uh, was in a part of history that had almost gotten erased. So mm-hmm. Buck and the Preacher is using a fictional story to tell true events, more or less. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. more of a, a slightly fictionalized version of a true story. And those types of films are the progressive ones in this Black Westerns bundle so far as I've seen. Um, And this also will come down to the treatment of Native Americans, which Mm -hmm. despite the fact that there is a non-Native American woman playing the principal Native American part in the film, specifically Harry Belafonte's wife, um, that there's and there's a little bit of exoticism and stickiness in those sequences that you feel is still uh, still irrevocably uh, tied to the Western in a way. It's like, please just drop that pretense and let them be people. Um, it's it's nothing compared to how offensive a film like Duel at Diablo could be, mm-hmm. where it's a, again that's a film made only about five six years earlier with Sidney Poitier, and it's got your same you know um, made made up white guys um, doing war cries and being murdered en masse the same way we had seen in say, John Ford movies in the decades yeah. prior, and here we don't see that, and sometimes those omissions. Um, will really stand out um, if you have a little more context in what this genre and what these performers have been working from in the years prior. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me go back to the Legend of Black Charlie because I do have a things a few things I want to say about that. That was a 1972 film, and we actually kind of kicked around the idea about doing an episode on that, or maybe even a combined episode with a, a another black western in that bundle uh, called Black Rodeo, which is really more of a nonfiction documentary about. A rodeo comprised of, of of black you know athletes who go into manhattan or maybe it's the bronx i'm not sure but somewhere in new york city and and they do a rodeo uh, in kind of a you know public setting and of course you don't think about cowboys as as black men but they very much were part of the west so but we decided let's just do an episode on buck and buck and the preacher maybe we'll throw in some some side observations of these other 1972 films but with with the legend of black charlie what you've got is a, just a a blatant revenge film that is kind of uh, reveling in the in the turning of the tables of a of a black man played by former nfl player fred williamson who's you know completely buffed and pretty macho and you know pretty impressive as a just kind of as a as a as a physical specimen as a as an athlete and all of that and yeah he gets to just kind of live out that fantasy of of you know paying back people who had done cruel horrible unforgivable things uh to slaves and former slaves there's there's a more nuanced morality there is certainly a sense of of getting the upper hand so if you're a if you're a, an african-american person watching this in 1972 or really any year there is a sense of of justice being served as the posse gets gunned down and as the heroes the the black men do survive the, the movie they're not made into martyrs and the community at least uh, has the hope of a better tomorrow at, at towards the end of the film as the wagon train at least gets to that next passage of 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 risk and peril and finds their way to some pretty nice looking 
settleable, arable, cultivatable land. You know, that's that's the ending of the movie. Again, to get back into spoilers there, but even even watching it then uh, with a quote unquote happy ending, you still recognize that this this small group of, of of settlers has a very tough road ahead of them, and we all know the history of of how you know race relations and just the cultural dynamics of the United States had progressed from those post-Civil War years up until the times we live in now. Yet, and and so so there's there's this nuance, there's this complexity to the, the moral fiber of, of what's being portrayed here. And, and I really appreciate that because you're right, that this isn't just fantasy. This isn't just kind of a... Um, a depiction of wouldn't it be nice if things really turned out that way uh, there there is some of that and there's definitely a lot of entertainment value uh, even for people who just like it as a kind of a different kind of a western but I, but I think that the strength and the the significance of the film goes deeper than that and I think it's also in the portrayal of, of who these characters are maybe let's just talk about about uh, the men that Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte portray them let's just talk about Buck uh, as I said, he's this—he's the war veteran who's probably done some pretty terrible things. As at a point in life where he recognizes that he's maybe got some uh, reconciling to do, and, and maybe he wants to you know, mend his ways and do something good for the sake of uh, his community and for the sake of other people. He's also got a wife—a a very important character in his film, Ruby D, who went on to have a very excellent career and and uh you know she she did a lot of things of maybe is most familiar at this point uh from do the right thing uh where, where she played a very important role there uh but she's the woman who's kind of stuck by him she knows that he's putting himself out there in danger she wants to get to a better life she's the one who's saying let's get up to canada where there's none of this poison in the soil there's no shadow of slavery that we've got to get out from under if we're going to have our kids raise a family she wants to do it in a in a you know a, a new environment and while buck would love to do that he's got a commitment to help these these uh, pioneers get through and uh you know and and find their way to, to freedom because they've already gone through a couple of really intense ordeals many of them have been killed they've lost their money the winter's coming uh, he's got to help them find a way through uh, what, what are some of the other characteristics of buck as a as a as a leader, uh, as a, a hero of sorts, uh, sort of the straight man, if you want to compare him against the the preacher, which we'll get to in a minute. But just tell me your impressions of Poitier's character and, and how do you think he did in bringing that man to life? I think Poitier's brilliance in his performance is making this character, which I think the, the material clearly sets him up to be something of a superhero, something of of a legend. Yeah. I, it's very telling that he's been named Buck, which is a often used as a racist term mm-hmm. again by white people when they're afraid, particularly afraid of the physical or sexual prowess of a black man. And that that is that word is sort of being used and reclaimed is not unlike what Mia Mask says about the use of the N word in, in Fred Williamson's Charlie mm-hmm. trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that aspects of oppression can be reclaimed and sort of used against um, the oppressors. And with that, um, and what that word always meant is that word was was an attempt to oppress, but because they were afraid, because the white people were afraid of of what these black men would, were capable of or what they would do, and um, to use that against them 
a, a allows it, it to become a tool. So one one wonders it's not necessarily canonical in, in the material if this is a, a nickname or not, but one assumes it probably is. It's probably some sort of code and and he wears it like a superhero name mm-hmm. and um it's not unlike other films where you know the the villains are trying to find the hero and, and track them down and the name alone will strike fear into the hearts of the villains or will strike ire and fury and racist hatred which is what you end up seeing in in a lot of these sequences where cameron mitchell is is, is after buck um so it, it it it's it sets him up to be um maybe like a fred williamson type a, a a action hero star or you know like someone who's going to come in and through brute force and strength be the hero mm-hmm. but because Sidney Poitier is um has been in action films up to this point but hasn't really had that same sort of physical athleticism like you would see from a Fred Williamson or a Joe Brown you a Jim Brown rather um you would get um you get from Sidney Poitier's his the same quiet intensity you see in other parts he plays mm-hmm. the same quiet intensity he brought to brother john which made him this made him seem like an angel which ends up being part of that that narrative is that there's something mystical about him and here there are there's so much um nuance in his performance and i think the thing that that really locks him in is ruby d i think mm-hmm. that for <laughs> me watching it again the bifurcated structure of this film really there's a, there's a there's almost a bait and switch of what the climax is going to be because Cameron Mitchell and his posse are, are killed at about the halfway mark. Yeah. And we end up, <laughs> we end up almost with an entirely new set of villains for the second half. Mm-hmm. And we let Ruby, Ruby D join the team and Buck and the preacher are finally heroes. Like it, it sort of becomes it because of that, it has the feeling of like an episodic serial black Charlie has the same structure. In fact, that has three episodes, each 30 minutes with their own violent climax um, so you really get the feeling like this could be the continuing adventures of, and this is the pilot episode, which shows how they get together. Um, and through the, that, that scene you mentioned with Ruby D where she mentions the blood in the ground and um, she's allowed to have this monologue, which is very powerful, which shows um, exactly what she's mentally dealing with and gives her a character. We've very seen very little of gives her a full under gives us a full understanding of what she's going through and gives her full range to, convey that as the brilliant actress she is mm-hmm. the way Poitier is able to play off of her in that particular scene and uh, and the energy of that scene I think that's such a pivotal moment where they they get their plan their their crazy scheme in order to get the money in order to help the wagon train get through um, is is so convincingly played and I, I love there's a moment where um, the posse comes in and you think that it's the same scene still, but we're now it's like the next morning or it's later on and they've already they've already uh, departed and their beans are still there like they've they've left. And and it just shows you like that there's a conviction to their escape then that makes you so impressed by them. And then when you suddenly see them heroically on horseback, you you know, you're in for like another adventure that's going to move you and excite you and and tell you something very important about the situation. Yeah, and it, it really is. It's, it's a very nice little switcheroo because you're right. It's like, wow, they're they're in danger, but no, they they're one step ahead of the game there, uh, making their break uh, while the getting is good. Uh, they realize time is of the essence, and and they've got to keep 
you know, they've got to, you know, keep things moving. So, 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 yeah, so there's the Buck character and we talked about his wife. Uh, let's talk about the preacher, Harry Belafonte. He is kind of in some ways the sidekick and the comic relief, but he's got his own center of gravity here. Uh, we hear a little bit of his backstory. Uh, his mother uh, and he as a child were sold to an itinerant preacher uh, as slaves. Uh, that preacher man took advantage of the, uh, of the, of his mother, of, of the woman and, um, and the young uh, preacher uh, had his revenge later on. So, so you you get a little bit of the you know what's driven him into this uh, this role. He's a bit of a shyster. I mean, he's a preacher. He knows how to kind of turn on the rhetoric. Uh, he's got um, you know he he's very crafty. He's very much a survivor, very much a trickster type of character. And his introduction, of course, is pretty comical as well. Uh, uh, he, he, you know, basically appears on screen naked. He's bathing in a stream, and a strategically placed hat keeps us in the, uh, you know, the 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 G or PG rating of the time. Um, but you know, he he brings a lot of color, a lot of character. Whereas Poitier is steely and reserved, and and kind of burning with that, you know, quiet intensity and dignity. Uh, Belafonte is not afraid or hesitant to play the fool if it will help advance him to uh, what what his ultimate schemes and and ambitions are. Uh, so he knows how to kind of play up to certain racist stereotypes about preacher men and using the rhetoric and the the cadence and and all of those kind of mannerisms to you know get his uh, pursuers off guard and. Uh, yeah, it's just a very interesting uh, bit of not quite minstrelsy, but he's he's kind of going down that road a little bit, but using it to his advantage. What are some of your thoughts on on how Harry Belafonte uh, kind of embodied certain characteristics and even stereotypes, uh, but but to a certain effect? I mean, I, I I was just again pretty impressed with with the subtlety, and maybe subtlety isn't the first word that comes to mind because in some ways his his portrayal is over the top. But there's a certain strategy to some of that flamboyance that he that he uh, spins out there, right? It's it's always incredibly intelligent the performance, mm-hmm. and still seeing the film again, I think he's the acting highlight in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, and the revelation of the film because, um, in a lot of ways, what you're seeing from Ruby D and Cindy Poitier is the same conviction that they always bring to their performances, just being used in an environment maybe we've not seen them in before. Um, Belafonte is giving us a character unlike anything, unlike the Matinee Idol, unlike the Calypso King. And it's mm-hmm. it, it it's striking how they give him these disgusting teeth and they make him <laughs> they make yeah. him uh, uh, clearly, clearly like odious on screen, clearly yeah. repellent to Buck when they first meet. And as you say, he's an antagonist to start with. But his performance is so impressive that he's he's sort of the fun character that if, the way I was seeing it in a way he, he was our conduit that we're following him in a lot in the first half a lot more than than buck in a lot of ways because he ends up being tasked with being the one to bring buck to cameron mitchell for five hundred dollars and um and it's due to their their chance meeting and buck having passed his horse along and um he knows he might know where buck is and when they eventually meet it it becomes a question of will he betray buck and I think we we sort of know probably not there's there's enough here but they haven't opened up to each other yet and they still 
they still don't have that that common trust. In fact, Buck is trying to get the preacher off his trail as much as possible and get him away from the wagon train and away from the people he's trying to protect. Soon after, however, well, he recognizes the preacher is a weasel, right? And yes, and, yes. That, and 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 we see we see that the preacher is eyeballing that little money roll that's hidden under the woman's blouse, mm-hmm. uh, and he's pretty tempted by that five hundred dollar offer to to betray this this other man that he has no loyalty or kinship to. But it is it is kind of a reminiscent of the the black man who will kind of betray his own community in order to get ahead in the white man's world. I mean, th- there's a resonance to that whole uh, tension between you know the the Uncle Tom types who will you know uh, turn to Judases and 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 betrayers uh, if that means their own survival or prosperity. And of course, there's the white men who are very willing to work that angle and exploit. Uh, that appeal to greed or uh, some sense of security. Of course, it's all very short-lived and dubious. And and even when uh, the preacher shows up and is ready to, you know, cash in his reward, you know, they have no interest in in, in you know being true to their word. So so you know the the, the swindle and and the hypocrisy and just the you know venal nature of this whole you know, post-slavery economy is, is, is portrayed there in, in pretty quick strokes. But it's one of the things you just think about living underneath those dynamics and, and how maddening it must have been to be, you know, a person of color in that society and, and knowing that, uh, you know, loyalty and, and bonds and, and integrity were, were just so easily uh, compromised and, and, uh, and, and, and thrown out, thrown to the side uh, for the sake of an easy and quick reward. Yeah, I, th- I think in the film is able to establish in those quick strokes the motivations that he might have mm-hmm. for that sort of betrayal. His he, he ends up having the principal character arc then of the film. He's the only character that really has to make, make a change in the way they view the world and the way they view the world they're currently living in, a world in which it doesn't seem like the preacher's ever really given much thought to how he could affect change further than what he's already trying to do, which is at least get more money so that he can stay on top of whatever people he needs to stay on top of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And through his relationship with Buck, he's able to see that greater cause and clearly come around to the side of like wanting to be part of this trio of heroes, being just as much a, a member of that hero squad, willing to put his life as much on the line. And, that that sort of climactic first moment when um, he's putting on that rhetoric as a as a song and dance to to catch them off guard when then they blow away all eight members of the posse in <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. in a quite wonderful action sequence that is cathartic and straightforward and I what I really love about this as well as the sort of bank robbery and mm-hmm. uh, the sort of sequence is the way they are able to communicate with, without words and just operate and get the job done. Um, everybody loves a movie where there are two heroes who team up and they, they're buddies and they're good at their jobs and they kick butt. And this movie delivers on that promise. The whole time, there's this extra political energy that allows you to cheer even further because we've seen these posse members murder children, murder women, murder mm-hmm. uh, old, old folks who who just wanted to find a place to live. Yeah. And and it's and it is a bit shocking because it's halfway through the film and Cameron Mitchell 
uh, has been our, our antagonist. But as everyone knows that racism in America is a hydra. And oh, yeah. the, the thing that I, I think is very striking about that scene, too, is the sheriff who's already said to Cameron Mitchell, like, let these people alone. Uh, they have that one kind of token white character in the film, which a lot of these films seem to have, who's uh, ineffectual. And, and it's, it's right. not always so pointedly um, directed to make that feel like a criticism. But they end up getting offed because they're in the way of the racists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, the sheriff and his and his group, they hear gunshots and they're confused. And they know that the folks around and they hear a woman scream and then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> and yeah. there's one thing about the, 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 like there, there's a consistent trend in, in these films where if the black men are perceived as a threat to the white women in town and they think that is, that's logically the issue. Uh, it becomes an even greater cause. Uh, it's the entire premise of, of Rosewood and is one of the most heartbreaking uh, truths about this era and about even people today to this day who um, can't seem to understand other humans as humans. So the sheriff, uh, that the law becomes the villains in a way, is the sort of heartbreaking twist there. Of course, we know that uh, the cops are not always on the side of black Americans. Mm-hmm. And in this in this case, it ends up being a moment where the sheriff um, is killed by his his sort of uh, his deputy, his mm-hmm. his right hand, who's clearly the crazy bad apple. And I, whenever a scene like this happens in a movie, I always wish that they had just committed to there being only bad apples, because I find that especially if you're going to set it in this era, a more accurate reflection of what we're seeing. The fact in Rosewood that you have John Voight as the good apple. I was like, really? <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. But um, that, oh, that might be my only yeah. my only big reservation about that film. But um, uh, the, uh, the, the second act is allowed to happen on mm-hmm. the fulcrum of the preacher's uh, transition to being politically aware. And this is an important detail because as you say, and as in any environment where people are oppressed, it's very easy to take um, dark paths and very easy to take ways out that seem to be offered as traps, you know, situations where people could be offered a route, um, be, even as if the state is, you know, encouraging people in areas to do drugs that could potentially kill them mm-hmm. and send them down paths of dependency in those ways. And that's that sort of need for um, power can put people in situations where uh, like the preacher that they they have to swindle. And mm-hmm. as many people will say, one of the, the crucial tenets of a lot of civil rights activism is to uplift the race and to make sure that you're never, you know, stepping on someone else, stepping on a, a, like another black person in order to to make your case, make your power superior, that it is a group effort and it's a community. And mm-hmm. that in this film, it's expressed as an entirely black community without, uh, with the exception of that sheriff who doesn't get too much screen time. And I won't think that that's a, a, a miserable uh, component as much as I make it sound, but it's, it's their battle. And um, the Native Americans briefly contribute, but not, not without also Ruby D and co also showing up with guns at the end. Mm-hmm. So it, it really does give the agency like if if the if they they have Native Americans on the hill in the final battle, 
which is harrowing and exciting, but definitely harrowing because both of our heroes do get shots that seem like they can end up being fatal. Yeah, they could um, bleed out, maybe, but right. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a it's a tough scene, and it's it, it is it's pretty gripping because in a film like this, especially the first time through, and I know we maybe already spoiled it, but there is truly dramatic tension because we are very accustomed as viewers to you know black people getting killed and 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 the normalization of of uh, atrocities inflicted upon the black population. I think even going back to that deputy character, there is. Uh, sort of a sense of he's maintaining a status quo like no i've got to go after that wagon train we can't let them get through because that's just that's setting a standard what if the rest of the you know the the coloreds the darkies whatever make their break and establish this new land i mean i, I even think about you know the the history of uh, you know, like tulsa oklahoma and the and the riots of what 1920s where they burned down uh, that that community um there was just been this very determined systemic effort to keep the black community down in its place and and that's kind of the that's kind of echoed here in in, in that the, the wagon train has has already suffered and and the sheriff acknowledges that these people have, have had a hard time but i've got no problem with them uh but you're right he stands in the way because we cannot let that wagon train get through not just because it's those people or that train but what it represents and and what it could uh you know what it could lead to if that if that example is allowed to stand and flourish and prosper on its own so you're right there is a larger politics at work here even though in the context of this film the story is still pretty small pretty local and the focus is kept on this you know this small group of people rather than this wave of black migration out of the south i mean it, it sort of points to a larger a larger reality. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the the Native American portrayal and and how the Indians, to a certain extent, team up with the uh, you know this this kind of black migrant community, uh, and in particular, um, Buck and the preacher. Uh, Buck, we we tell early in the movie, has had relations with these folks before. He knows how to uh, you know. Uh, bargain and how to negotiate he understands what's important to them and uh you know they've they've gotten to know each other him and the chief and this woman who, who does the translation for them uh and there is like you say a certain degree of protection and alliance that comes up towards the end of the film but there's also tensions you know he wants to get more provisions from the from the indians than they're willing to give the indians you know reflect back that not too long ago, you and your other army veterans were out here gunning us down, you know. So while they recognize that, you know, maybe they're not the same, uh, that Buck is not the same as the yellow hairs uh, who were kind of leading that charge, he's still complicit. And Buck has to own that. And it's, it's again, another pretty skillful, somewhat subtle scene, but I, I really appreciated how you know, this wasn't just, you know, people of color rallying up against the man, uh, which might have even played into the politics of that moment. I mean, the, the you know, the Native Americans, uh, uh, you know, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee was a bestseller. There was the whole occupation of Alcatraz going on. And there was a reckoning with the injustices that the, uh, the Native American community and, and many nations had had suffered uh, as a as a 
result of the expansion of of the, of the American, you know, empire, if you will. And that, that's another book I've read recently, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, which is, again, really revealing in, in demythologizing and bringing to the forefront some of the real horrors that, that occurred uh, during the time that is, you know, so frequently mythologized and romanticized in that whole Western genre. And uh, yeah, even for me as a guy in his late 50s, uh, just reckoning with my own education and my own sense of American history and and how this nation came to be in its current formation and all that. Uh, yeah, it, it, movies like this really just have a, a way of kind of re-sensitizing my conscience and just giving me a perspective that I think is really valuable. And uh, whether you're somebody of my age or younger, I think there's a lot of truth and a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from watching a film like this, which, you know, at the same time fits into some of the the, the conventional genre cliches and, and formats and all of that. But the differences between this and your standard Western, I think, make it really unique and, and really substantial and and a good counterbalance to those you know great john ford movies i mean they're they're well made they're entertaining they're dynamic and kinetic and and uh you know i i wouldn't say john ford was you know a straight up racist but he 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 portrayed certain uh sort of uh, themes and and ideas in ways that uh, I think still require a lot of critical deconstruction to, to really understand what's being said there and not always just taken at face value. So yeah, uh, just, there's a lot of thoughts here, a lot, a lot of feelings and a lot of impressions I'm taking away from this. Uh, what are some other aspects that you might want to dig into or, or uh, lay out there for our listeners to consider? Well, as far as your, your topic on the native American treatment, I think that what we get is, a better treatment than we've seen pretty mm -hmm. much anywhere else up to mm -hmm. this point. And it's such a relief not to see Native Americans used as props to be murdered, yeah. props to be villains, props to also, you know, threaten the, the white folks, threaten the women and children, um, like you might see in some of these other films. Like, again, you see in Juliette Diablo, which um, I... I, uh, I have no, no good things to say about that film, I'm afraid to say, despite maybe Sidney Poitier's good in it, but um, I found it quite a miserable experience because mm -hmm. it was like, this is 1965, 1966. It's like, why? We should we know better. Yeah. We should know better. Like, what? Yeah, this yeah. is insane. I mean, Stagecoach knows better. And that's mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the late 30s. So it's, right. it's it was bizarre to me. Um, well, I but, mean, if I, if I can just kind of piggyback off that, I mean, I, I, I think it just, it just shows how how so many racist assumptions are really like right there on the surface. I mean, that's the thing, you know, and have been all along. I mean, we, we can talk about the, you know, the politics of the last several years since that former guy was president and all of that. But all, all he really did was, was crystallize and, and, you know, certainly he expanded the sense of permission for a lot of racist people to do their racist thing more openly perhaps than they had, in the immediate years prior but you know there's just been all kinds of reactionary nastiness coursing through the mainstream of american culture you know for a long time and i think the 50s and 60s saw a rebirth of that and we, we've seen eruptions of it all along um yeah i appreciate that this film was made at a time when a lot of that 
conventional wisdom, so to speak, was being called into question and was being sort of, you know, confronted in its own way. So yeah, didn't mean to interrupt or cut you off, but I, I just no, felt, it's fine. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could even see in, in the, in the, on the Criterion channel, if you're looking through the black Westerns bundle, you'll see clearly made up white people as native Americans standing side by side with a film like this, which has one instance of it by means of, um, Harry Belafonte's wife. Um, which I regret, and I think that that it's just it's it's a shame that they that they couldn't have trusted some somebody who clearly uh, fit the part better. But there is a, a a more of a dignity they give to those moments than you've expected otherwise. And though I won't I won't um, say that it's the it's the ideal presentation. I don't want to give like a a medal to something that's just the best of the worst, so to speak. Like it's <laughs> yeah. it's I'm still not in love with it. Like, again, the, like the musical choices you know, could very easily give you an idea of these, this being the other. Um, but again, compared to Black Charlie, where the Native American presence comes in and is mesmerized by the Black characters and they touch faces of each other. And it's this very awkward moment, um, which I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or what, but it's it's genuinely offensive, I think, yeah. as in the moment that it is. So <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't leave this film... Um, with that same distaste in my mouth because uh, it's able to at least tell part of the story for, for uh, all of the people present. And by giving any time to the mass genocides that had occurred in America before then, I think that it's head and shoulders above so many other films of its kind that, I mean, no native American character is killed in Buck and the Preacher. Right. They, they, they're an autonomous body who similarly to, to the black wagon train, they want to just live in peace and haven't been allowed to do that and have had to create a, a violent um, structure with like the, the need of guns. One of the most important commodities they have are guns and bullets. Right. And it makes you think about all the other Westerns where, you know, the Apaches come in and just start murdering people. And you're like, oh, why would they do that? It's like, yeah. I don't know. Maybe if you made the film from their side, there might be a very good reason for their to co- them to them to come in and, and get some sort of justice in their lives. Well, exactly. How were they living before the settlers, you know, the white settlers invaded their territory and, and decided, you know what, we're going to take this land and maybe we'll give you a little pittance here or there. Or or they, they would do the reservations after, you know, the bloodshed had just become unbearable even to those who were, you know, inflicting it upon those people. But you know, and again, there's there's a lot of complexity to the different nations of, of you know North America that existed prior to you know white colonization and all of that, and we certainly don't have time, and I don't have the expertise to understand you know who were the quote unquote warlike tribes and who were the peaceful ones, but but the truth is the, the Native Americans were <laughs> behaving exactly as any populated uh, you know environment would be if a bunch of people came in from outside and says you know we're taking your land we're going to kill your food supply uh, we're going to you know make negative examples we're going to rape and massacre and pillage in order to instill you know the fear of god in you and and to show you that we mean business and you better get out of our way uh there are definitely intimations that you know the the indians understand they've got a long struggle ahead of them they do not want to sell any of their guns or powder to buck no matter how much money he wants to offer them because money's you know 
easy to come by compared to weapons and and they need every one that they can get for the struggle that lies ahead and so that's the thing you know the the triumphs or the the resolution you know of this movie the you know the 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 peaceful and and somewhat uplifting conclusion is really just an oasis of of peace and and serenity that may be very short-lived in the lives of the people being depicted on screen but you take what you can get because you know horrors and atrocities might be waiting for you a month or less down the road you just just don't know but you you keep moving forward and you keep moving ahead and i think that's again that is a kind of a, a message that i i kind of take from this i do feel i did feel um uplifted and and ennobled a bit in watching this movie where i didn't have that same takeaway with with black charlie even though that did become a franchise and perhaps uh, catered to the needs of an audience, or perhaps it just had creators who are willing to, you know, truly pursue that path of exploitation. Uh, you know, Buck and the Preacher could have easily been a franchise. I, I think it did okay, not huge business, but I don't know that Poitier wanted to continue that, even though all the pieces were there, the setup was there, and and you know, you've got the the tensions and the dynamics between the leading characters, including again, Ruby D they, they could have gotten the band back together and, and made another sequel at least probably, and, and probably done a fine job with it. Um, but this turned out to be a one-time production. It told its story and then everybody can move on to other things. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of as, as we get kind of towards the end of uh, of our time here today uh kind of what's your takeaway uh, and and uh you know we, i think we've established the significance the importance the value of the film uh what are some other kind of you know final thoughts or or kind of summations that you want to you know, make about the film sure i have a few stray stray thoughts or mini observations that um didn't really fit anywhere else uh i i'd like to um to point out a sort of strange anomaly which um in some ways, I can say like this, this, this fellow probably has a better head on his shoulders than your average white writer in Hollywood. But Ernest Kenoy, who wrote the film as one of the co-writers, also wrote Brother John, mm. would, oh, go okay. on, would go on to write Lead Belly, which was mm-hmm. recently on the channel, mm-hmm. uh, was a writer on Roots and was the lead writer for Roots the Next Generation, which... Um, all of these these properties, I've I have I've seen Lead Belly as well, and um, and these these properties they they're all ahead of the curve, but I still have to shrug a bit and go, but it, or or at least say like look at what Hollywood still was at the time that it was going to be a white writer. Um, now, as far as I remember, uh, or at least intuited when we talk about Brother John. It feels like it's not necessarily a coincidence that those were two consecutive projects they worked on together. I know that Sidney Poitier, in a way, inherited this project as right. a director. But I wonder to what extent um, this writer was included, maybe because uh, Poitier. I, I have the feeling that Poitier really enjoyed Brother John, is what I'm saying. I have, mm-hmm. I have a feeling that, that he was very proud of that film. And... And I think that could recognize that, hey, this white writer may have something here. It's, it's very interesting to see that his writing credits has three very conspicuous black feature films and two very important miniseries of this era. 
Um, and it just shows you again, like the, the limitations that say black writers would have had how that th- like even the, the, the obvious choice, like let's hire a black writer for this was something that Hollywood still couldn't take. And I was just listening to a podcast yesterday where a man was speaking about how he and his wife are writers for TV shows, all of which are uh, fully starring black characters or on BET or have black themes as their primary focus. And they are white writers and they I wasn't very happy to hear what this couple was saying because they were like, oh, yeah, we're, we're you know, like the not racist people in the room. They were the two white people and they, everybody loves us. And it's like, don't speak for the black people in the room <laughs> just because yeah. they let you write on their show. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I appreciate that they are the minority. They are the maybe the one white voice on a writing team for a show. Um, but it, it does. But don't get self-congratulatory about it. Right. Well, it, yeah, the, yeah. One, one of the things that I think that is important here, um, you know, in, in, in creating a, a top down revision of say, a Hollywood power structure is just norm, normalizing inclusion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a big grandstanded virtue signaled event. Right. Performative, if, all of that. Exactly right. right. Like mm-hmm. I, I, my common example I bring up uh, with opera as an opera producer is that um, as instead of, instead of the Met Opera announcing like, hey, everybody, next year, we're going to start our season with Terrence Blanchard's opera, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, our first opera ever done by a black composer. And it's like, Yay. you've been around for 100 years. <laughs> right. You are the most, right. you, you have the most money out of any opera company. And you're going to grandstand about the fact that you're now getting around to this. Whereas what if, just what if like for an entire season, all 22 shows were by black composers and you said, you know, fuck the donors. They have to deal with the truth. And like people will just have to understand they don't acknowledge it. Just be like, these are, or Hey, 50, 50, that would still be unusual. Mm -hmm. Like find some barrier there. Same goes for women composers in opera. Like there's very often tokenism even then, but it's like, what if one season had three operas by a woman and one by a man, and that was your division. uh, And you just let that be normal. That way we advance the way we're going. And when people complain about like overrepresentation being a problem for some reason, I don't think that it should be because I think what you need is a little bit of overcorrection. You yeah. need, we need to sort of push as many voices forward in order, in order for, in order for the future generations, in order for 90 years from now, kids to not like think that's unusual. It's just yeah. people are used to things being a certain way and have bred in their own systemic ideas about what a director looks like, what a, a, a writer looks like, what the certain voices we see on TV or on movies are. And um, if we have to overcorrect and if, and if the white guys like us have to take a back seat in order for future generations to be happy, I, I think that's a great thing. Um, so I, I, was sort of interested in, in this, this like looking back at this film, knowing that if this was made today, that would be a news story that there was a white writer because mm-hmm. it is, this currently a thing that happens all the time when people see, Oh, look, Mulan has white writers. No wonder it's a, a tragedy. Like, no wonder it's junk. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and so here, like I, 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 I can give a good faith recommendation for the films that Ernest Kino has been involved in. And I don't think that anybody can discredit the power and success of the Roots series. Um, right. That, and- that's a very significant, I mean, that would be a TV miniseries that I think Criterion could conceivably release for, to very good effect because it, it's it's a pretty powerful, you know, 
work right. of, it's a, of it's it's crucial. So, mm -hmm. um, but it was it was a curious observation that I had, and and at least I we can in good faith say that Ernest Kinoy seems to be somebody that um, that was getting this work and doing it the justice that he could. Yeah, and yeah. that and that he was being asked back at least in environments like this or by Gordon Parks for Lead Belly. Those were at least moments where there were black voices in charge. Whereas Roots is, you know, also something Alex Haley, like that you have people who are in charge who uh, maybe said, Ernest Kino, you, 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 you can write for this. And we like we saw your work on X and Y. We think this will work. Um, anyway, I thought that was a curious observation yeah. to uh, to sort of frame a little bit of that. And, and um, there is another um, unless you have a thought, there's another. Crew well, well, I may, I, it may be on, on this whole idea. I mean, I think there's a parallel to even what the Criterion Collection is is doing these days while where they are bringing a, a lot more diversity, uh, you know, people of color, women. And, uh, you know, you see in some of the reactions to announcements and things like that, uh, a bit of a backlash from, uh, you know, white guys and, and, and others who sort of see, oh, it, you know, kind of a I, whether they want to call it, you know, garbage political correctness or or token or whatever, whatever, but I I, I think that overcompensation, if you want to call it that, or just the intentional effort to say, you know what, we really have run with this, you know, kind of white guy auteur theory for decades now. It's really time to to increase the mix, even to the point of, uh, you know putting some other more prominent or more familiar voices off to the side, at least for a little while. It's not like they're never going to be heard from again. They're not getting canceled, but we really do need to uh, diversify and create a greater sense of inclusion to where it's, it is completely normal and not, you know, um, again, you know, a, a cause for celebration because, oh, here's a black directed film that we're, we're uh, you know, patronizingly showcasing for our, our predominantly white, uh, middle class, largely affluent audience. Uh, we, we really have to do the work to get past that. So I appreciate your your bringing that up, and and I think, like you say, it is a it is a parallel to what you see happening in some of the you know the recent physical media releases uh, over the past you know six seven eight months or so. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm very I'm very proud of the company for for doing that. And yeah, and, and it's true. Like if you if you think about like how many directors percentage wise of major movies have been part of xyz demographics mm -hmm. if criterion's release output was equal to those demographics it would not be enough they need to be closer to the actual demographics of the population right and people would look at that and think like that's misrepresenting like there aren't even no listen if you if criterion released just films by people of color and women for the next four years you know what would happen? They'd run out because then that's, there haven't been enough because they've been subjugated <laughs> right. too long. Mm -hmm. So and then what it would do is it would suddenly canonize more movies and, and it would create like a little bit of more encouragement to to make current films more representative of the population as it stands. Yeah. So, again, if you push if you push and you suddenly have, you know, if they released a if they had a month where, you know, there was one film by a white guy, it would be unusual. But I'm like, that. Would, why would that be any different than a month where there's one film by a not white guy? Like right. you can there's these two things should not be different. So any of the people who are those commenters who are all racists, they <laughs> yeah. they they have to also realize that um, that every film that Criterion's put out that can fit into these categories or be accused of these things uh, are 
our amazing films because it's Criterion Collection and then everything they put out is worth seeing. So it's like it, I, I'm not a fanboy. I, uh, I'm, I'm telling the truth here. Like they, they put out things that are worth your time. And there's there's never a thing that they put out that you won't leave going. You won't leave gaining something in your life from because, well, really, any film they put out has something to do with some amount of human experience, some 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 essential aspects of life on our planet are examined or explored through the making of or through the watching of the things they release. So um, yeah. I hope people, if anybody here is, is bristles at any of this, I hope you maybe re-examine uh, your life and you watch exclusively films by people with whom you were un- uncomfortable for the next year and then see if you learn something. Like see if you, you like I, I will tell you, my, 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 my family, my mom and dad, they probably hadn't seen that many films directed by black directors. All right. And I think that's something that I've actively been helping them fix and recommending them pretty much almost exclusively films that aren't by white directors. I know that they'll, they'll find the, they'll get those movies like from the, the trickle down of living in a, a Republican voting suburb uh, as kids. So right. like they, they know, <laughs> yeah. like they know like what movies that they've heard of. So, um, and uh, it was, it was quite, quite moving. Actually, my dad very recently, uh, I, I had him watch bamboozled and he, mm. he said that he cried watching it. He was like, I couldn't believe like I, I under, and he says, I understand so yeah. much more now. And I was like, this is, that's what I want to hear, dad. That's exactly. exactly what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, so I think a lot of times people just need to have the right film put in front of them and it might open them up to perspectives they hadn't considered. And, and films like Buck and the Preacher, film like Rosewood, um, even, even for me, I'm watching these films and I'm like, there's still corners of history that have been erased that need to be explored. And, um, and, so if I if I have another um, similar yeah. uh, shout out, yeah, Alex Phillips Jr., who is the cinematographer, I think beautiful cinematography in this film. I think it's very interesting. He also shot Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Oh, wow. And, okay. and I can actually see it. Like I can see, I can see how that's related. His Criterion connection is he shot Kanoa, oh, okay. which um, I think is another film about revealing uh, to a greater audience. Uh, as the subtitle of that film says, sort of shameful aspect of history. Yeah. Of, uh, mm-hmm. um, so I I will shout out Alex Phillips and Benny Carter, the composer, who opens the film with this wonderful jaw harp and sort of bass harmonica. Uh, now that's guttural. Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, right? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got he's got a, a huge um, assemblage of like major musicians. Yeah. Uh, for this for this recording. Well, Terry and McGee are pretty major blues figures i'm not sure how familiar you are but uh yeah i was pretty impressed by their soundtrack contributions and again i, I don't know the composer uh, who you just he's a, named. He's a, a, a jazz uh, jazz musician a jazz legend okay. who didn't compose many films yeah but no i i love the music and of course you'll hear samples on the intro and outro there but that that, that definitely brings some great energy and vibrancy to the film uh it's pretty funky uh not exactly your traditional western soundtrack but i think it really fits uh the the unique uh kind of dynamics of, of this of this story and of these characters I really it has that. gravitas in a way yeah. because yeah. i think because of of the way it uses that that harm that low harmonica mm-hmm. and the fact that the film kind of ends with the same kind of music i think shows that the cycle will continue that 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 the that that this 
the tension that's given by that music will persist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's powerful. The by comparison, I actually will have a favorable thing to say about the Black Charlie music from that film. It used um, historical pieces of music from the era in a funk style, a t- like a typical black exploitation score. Right. Like it, okay. it used that idiom. And but because it was using hymns and spirituals and folk songs in the music, it was to me much cleverer than any review I saw was giving it credit for and was doing some superimpositions that were actually insightful in a way the film wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, yeah. Was, I, yeah. I was, I was, appreciative, I was, I, I'm appreciative of anything that, you know, has a de- like deconstructionist element with how right. you expect a Western to sound um, like, and that that's not uncommon. I mean, raindrops keep falling on my head is not necessarily a song you would have heard in a Western in the 1940s or fifties, but um, I think that the the acid westerns, the this sort of we did McCabe and Mrs. Miller, mm-hmm. this this era that um, and the spaghetti westerns too that kind of show that like this is a genre that is maybe even more of a medium than a genre. It can it can have a lot of um, layers to it. Um, another shout out is to Clarence Muse, who um, plays the old this old Ujo who's um, yeah. in the wagon train and has a white beard. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's an elder statesman of civil rights and of, of black actors. Okay, and he um, he has a shout out in one of the showboat special features because he plays a janitor in one scene, and the hmm. special feature is about the black representation and racism in the film, and about how he was such a legend as an actor that like even in these small roles he gives in Hollywood films, he always makes them more. Like, he works the the role against what the film is doing. Okay. And he will, he will, another great role of his is in Big City Blues, an early Warner Brothers pre-code, where he sings, he sings beautifully because he's a fantastic singer. Okay, and so his in, career goes way back then. Way back. Fantastic, um, yeah. A recommendation is for a film that has less than, you know, maybe 50 or 60 views on Letterboxd. It's called Broken Strings, which um, you can find public domain on YouTube. It's a starring film from him of, from 1940 with an all-black cast where he is a famous violinist who, um, after an injury, uh, is must teach and is trying to get his son to play classical, but his son wants to play jazz and swing. And it's a beautiful, fantastic film uh, with, with that's also important. Again, it's like if, uh, people will I see criticism on Letterboxd for this film that 40 people have seen going. The budget was so cheap. The acting wasn't good. It's like, well, yeah, well, think about the infrastructure given to a poverty row picture with an all black yeah. cast in 1940. Um, So I think everybody owes it to themselves to see all of those films because the truth is there are very few of them to see. Like, well, yeah, the fact that they even survive to this day is is amazing, right? Well, yeah, go ahead. On on YouTube, you'll see a number of copies. Um, Spend a moment to find the one that doesn't look um, junky because with public domain films, there was a TCM print that looked beautiful, so you'll be able to find a copy of that that looks good. Excellent. Okay. Well, I'll definitely, I'll, I'll put a, I'll try to put a link to that. Cause I'm, I'm, I was intrigued. I, I didn't recognize the character, his name or anything, but he certainly had that aura, that, that kind of sense of, of presence that, uh, figured that he must have a, a, a true life backstory there, you know, but he definitely conveys a sense of richness and continuity. Uh, like you say that elder statesman, uh, and, and, and a link to a past, you know, uh, for all we know, he may have been, you know, the descendant, like a first or second generation brought over from Africa who's bringing some of the old ways with him, or at least a link to that 
more, more remote past uh, that's been kind of devoured by the, the legacy of slavery. So, yeah, I did appreciate the fact that they kind of gave him a few prominent moments there as he's laying out the chicken bones and, and kind of, you know, giving an oracle to, to, to the people and, and showing them some guidance and some wisdom. So that was a, those are cool moments. I'm really glad that you brought some attention to that as well. Yeah, it's beautiful to see him walk into the field at the end. Yes, exactly. Like seeing seeing his promised land be achieved mm-hmm. and that they've, that they've found a place to live that, that these characters, again, you, you, you shudder to think at what might actually have happened, like how long could their success have lasted, but um, the the positivity of the ending yeah. is is I think striking and a relief without it being a foregone conclusion that it's just going to stay this way. Everybody needs to work, you know. Right. Obviously, the the people like the sheriff, the people that think of themselves as good apples, are actually bad apples in a way because they don't do anything. They just go, "I'll leave them alone" because they're not doing anything wrong. Right. Whereas they have to stand up and, and help. They have to stand up and be part of it. So right, they um, withdraw and and let the jackals, you know, uh, take over. You know, the the posse or whatever. And and that is the sad legacy of the history that our nation is still grappling with, and too many people just want to persist and deny. You know. So there's 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 there's. I think all of the right messages are said in the conclusion of this film, without you leaving depressed without you leaving yeah. miserable but you you leave feeling like i think you i think a um like an eight-year-old with no awareness of history and politics could still enjoy this film as a mm-hmm. as an action romp uh you know even with the violence it's it's fairly bloodless uh not unlike you know like it's it's a pg action movie Oh yeah, very very much so. And and again, uh, you know, somebody who just appreciates westerns for the landscape, for the, you know, you've got a couple heist scenes, you've got some shoot 'em ups, you've got some drama, you've got some comedy, um, you, you know, the whole package is there if you're just looking for some entertainment. But I think it does touch on a deeper level, and it does give uh, sort of an uplifting ending without being sappy or saccharine or or you know completely delusional. And it's uh, you know love triumphs overall or any of that kind of thing so well very good you know i'm not sure that i ever see these films coming to the criterion collection as far as physical media releases but uh, certainly would welcome this bundle or something along that lines back anytime soon maybe a sydney poitier box that wouldn't be too much to to ask or hope for and this would certainly be a very worthwhile addition because it does mark a pretty significant uh, sort of point of departure for for his future career uh just a great man altogether somebody who i really have a lot of personal admiration and respect for and i've really enjoyed this conversation with you william you've certainly opened my eyes to some dimensions that had maybe passed me up in the first time through and uh so i definitely encourage uh listeners even if you have to shell out a few bucks and rent it online somewhere after it leaves a channel at the end of this month but i certainly hope if you listen in and you've listened this long that you take advantage of the opportunity to watch on Criterion Channel and let us know your thoughts if you've got any observations or opinions that you want to share about this movie or any of the things that we've said today. So, William, you want to give us any updates or just how life is going these days or any other little you know, shout-outs you want to give as to what you're up to on a personal level? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll second you and say I think this is a film everybody should see, so I hope you were able to find it and enjoy it. Um, it's been it was a, a privilege for me, I think, to be able to revisit it. I felt lucky that this film um, is getting a, a second life because of streaming. And I'm 
thankful for the Criterion Collection for bringing it twice. Yeah. So hopefully they can they can find a way to to continue including it. And um, and I'll say if, if this if this was ever announced on a disc, I think that they could uh, make a very impressive package with contextual materials mm-hmm. um, to make it uh, worth worth a, a purchase. But if you have to end up spending money on it now for a rental, it's worth it. As for me, um, I have. Amazingly, three prospective performance gigs coming up. Yeah, uh, but all of them for me are like I got to pencil them in the book because okay. I don't really, I don't really know. They're all will it really July, happen? Yeah. July, yeah. August, and September. Okay. So okay, um, and there and some of them are in far flung sort of places, which brings obviously a lot of um, difficulty. If you're listening to this in the year 2029, there's a <laughs> pandemic right now. You might remember. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I. If I may be going to my usual England gig, but that would require a lot more legwork and and um, red tape in order to achieve. So we shall see if that transpires. Um, and I may be up Minnesota ways in um, hmm. in September to play Abraham Lincoln, but uh, <laughs> that might get postponed. I don't know. So yeah, I'll well, we're, we're you know it it feels like things are opening up a little bit. You know, there's you know, obviously spring is in the air and and the the sunshine's coming out for us who live in the northern climes. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good vibes, a lot of optimism, a lot of things to look forward to as we get to the 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 nicer months of the year. But you're right, there's still a tentative provisional quality just to so much planning. Uh, my wife and I are looking at some vacation plans. Do we want to drive? Do we want to fly? How far away do we want to go? You know, just all that kind of stuff. So uh, a little bit of walking on eggshells uh, with life in 2021, but uh, it's good. I'm glad to hear that you're doing well and definitely uh, eager to see if some of these uh, in-person performance gigs materialize. So keep us posted. <laughs> all right. We'll do. All right, listeners, thank you very much for your time and attention today, uh, wherever you're listening to, whenever that is. Our next episode is episode 100, and um, I'm not sure what I want to do for that. The next film in our queue is John Waters' Pink Flamingos. Do oh. I want to make that number 100, or do I want to do a special commemorative episode in some sort? I'm not sure, so uh, stay tuned. Uh, episode 100 will be coming next. Uh, what it is, or who it is or how we'll do it i'm not yet sure we'll we'll come up with something um maybe pink flamingos is a perfectly commemorative well i'm I'm on for that one okay well i'll I'll, I'll see you there either way well we'll get to it we'll just see what we want to do as far as uh commemorating that uh you know that uh centennial number so that's our show for now i'm going to get this edited out there really quick thanks for listening everybody we'll be back at it real soon Bye bye